The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Practicing the Way of Jesus, a study on the Sermon on the Mount. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to pray. Father, I ask for your Holy Spirit to be here. I ask that you would help us. That you would give us grace. in a world that is standing on their rights, demanding their rights, in a world that's divided by stupid stuff like masks. You've united us with the blood of Jesus Christ. You said you've you've destroyed all the dividing wall of hostility. Everything that wants to define us, our race, our socioeconomic background, our class, our citizenship in this country and in other countries, our concepts of health, our concepts of wellness, our concepts of what's best for the country, what's best for the world. All of these things are walls that divide us. And you have destroyed those things with the blood of Jesus. You've enabled us to love our enemies, love people that are different from us. Father, would the blood of Jesus cover all of that and enable us to not stand on our rights here this morning, to lay aside our rights? Would you help us? Help us, Lord, for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Listen. If you're new here, we have been studying Jesus' Sermon on the Mount for the past four months. And one of the things that Jesus has been doing in this sermon is he's trying to develop a Christian imagination in the minds and the hearts of his people. Now, when I say a Christian imagination, I do not mean he's talking make-believe or he just wants us to think about heaven or he wants us to think about angels or supernatural beings or something along those lines. I mean, he's trying to get them to imagine a new way of being human. 
a new way to relate to God and a new way to live in this world as God's people. Now, one of the things that um, anyone who writes a good story knows is they're trying to capture our imagination, not just to entertain us, but to get us to embrace maybe a character. And typically what we do as we embrace a character or as we embrace a plot line is then we, our imagination gets captured by that and we begin to live a certain way. Okay, so that's why um, if you're a track, let's just say it's like this. You know, you, you, you watch a lot of, you know, Marvel movies or something and you probably get attracted one way or another. Maybe you get attracted to the heroes and then you want your life to live, for, to live and stand for something bigger than that. Or maybe you get attracted to the evil and your, your life is towards being rebellious and being dark and being, you know, different from the, the quote unquote good guys. All of us, Imagine in our mind a certain way of being human, a certain goal or end, and then we live towards that. And most of the time, we, we might not even be aware of that. Maybe we had a neighbor who really inspired us of a child. Maybe we had a doctor. Maybe we had a friend. Maybe it was our parents. Maybe whatever it is. But we have this idea in our mind of what it looks like to be a good man or a good woman, and we're living towards that. Well, here's the problem. A part of that imagination is how to relate to God. What does God expect of us? And there's two primary ways that human beings try to relate to God. One is through, is through what's called, you could call it our works, our behavior. There's something in human nature that always tries to relate to God through our works. Now this is interesting. You can travel to any continent, on the globe, you can go back in time to Native American tribes or ancient Israel, and you are always going to find religious people, always. There's never been a people, collectively, who were not religious. What does that mean? That means every group of people is aware of a God, and they're, they're trying to relate to him through things that they do, through their works. You've got religious prayers, religious dances, religious fires. You've got religious incense, burning smells and bells. You've got sacrifices. Wherever you find religion, you find people that in order to get God's attention or favor, you must be do, doing something. Every people on the planet, you're trying to get God's attention or favor by doing something. Jesus began his sermon here by flipping that entire religious script on its head. When he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, he's turning all religion on its head. In this sense, Christianity is the anti-religion. It doesn't begin with good works meant to get God's attention or favor. It begins with a recognition of the reality that we are actually spiritually and religiously bankrupt. We are actually poor in spirit and need of grace as spiritual beggars. 
Jesus here is trying to capture the imagination of man and say, there is a different way to know God. There is a different way to be human and to relate to God and to relate to others. This is why Jesus came to the earth. The son of God came to this earth to save sinners. Not to give humans a new way to save themselves. He didn't come to make religious people better. Oh, you guys are praying this way and you guys are offering sacrifices this way and you guys are behaving this way. Let me show you a different way, a more fruitful way, a better way to say your prayers and offer your sacrifices and be good people. That's not why he came. He didn't come to make good people better. He didn't come to take moral people more moral. He didn't come to make do-gooders gooder. He came to save sinners, not take religious actors and make them better religious actors. Another way to say that is, Jesus didn't come to this earth to make us nice. He came to make us new. He can't, he's not improving on our old life, like looking down and going, oh, oh, those sacrifices, let me tweak that a little bit. Oh, your morality, let me tweak it a little bit. Oh, the way you pray, no, no, let me tweak it. He's not improving our old life. He's literally giving us a new one. And once we receive that new life from God, we must learn how to live out of that new God-given spiritual identity. The problem is, human beings have a really hard time relating to God on the basis of this grace. And we always almost constantly try to smuggle our good works back into our relationship with God. We believe that maybe God needs our good works in order to be happy with us. Like his attitude toward us is dependent upon our behavior. Like God wakes up and goes, I don't know if it's gonna be a good day today. Let's see how my kids are behaving. And if we're behaving... Oh, whoo, it's a good day. Now, we would not say that. We would not profess that, but that's how we live. Almost always checking our own morality, checking our own standards, seeing how we're doing in comparison to the rules put down for us. I wonder if God's happy with me. I wonder if he's upset with me, frustrated with me. And then Paul writes, or Luke writes this in Acts chapter 17, verse 25. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. God does not need our good works in order to be happy with us, in order to be pleased with us. Now, people, when they hear that, they always ask me, well, well, well then what are good works for? He's, he's obviously got a lot of things in here he wants us to do. Martin Luther put it very simply. He said this, God does not need your good works, your neighbor does. 
In that statement are the two great truths of Christianity and of the Reformation. One, God does not need your good works. That's the doctrine of justification by faith. This is amazing. What God does to please himself is he sends Jesus to obey the law perfectly in your place. Jesus comes as the perfect man, lives out the life of the perfect man in your place. He obeys everywhere you disobey. Jesus obeyed God perfectly and he goes to the cross and he pays the penalty for our sins, the just wrath of God that we deserve for sinning against God, Jesus takes it on himself and absolves us of wrath. That's called propitiation, turns away the wrath of God that was meant for us. Jesus does all of that for us and he secures God's goodwill toward us. He secures God's attitude for us. He secures God's love for us. He secures God's pleasure for us. So now God is happy with us because of the work of Jesus. God is pleased with us because of the work of Jesus. He is not pleased with us because we obey him. He is pleased with us because Christ obeyed him. So God does not need our good works. That's what that means. Justification by faith alone. We put our faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus' righteousness is counted towards us. That we have no place and we, don't, we didn't do that ourselves. God did it for us through Christ. And now God makes us new creations all by himself. God makes us new. And then the second half of that statement, so God doesn't need our good works, but our neighbor does. What does that mean? This is the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. That when God saves you, he makes you a missionary. What does that mean? He brings you in, he, he brings you into the family of God and he shoots you out as a missionary to the culture. What does that mean? Since we're no longer worried, oh, is God happy with me? Is God happy with me? I better obey him. I better do all this stuff to make him happy with me. Since we are no longer focused on doing good works to try to earn justification or quench God's wrath, we are now set free to serve our neighbors in love through our daily lives. I want you to hear this. When you're so focused on your horizontal relationship with God, making God happy by, by being a good boy or being a good girl, being a good man or being a good wife, trying to please God, when you're so focused on that, you're forgetting about your neighbor. And when you can say, you know what? God is eternally happy with me because of Jesus. I don't have to wonder, am I in or am I out? What's he think of me today? You're now free to think about your neighbor and to do good works for your neighbor. That we get to serve God as priests to this culture by serving one another, doing something useful and oriented to the good of others. We don't do good works anymore to earn salvation before God or to keep our salvation or to keep God happy with us. We now do good works to demonstrate our salvation to our neighbor. We do good works because God has changed us into that type of people all the way down. That's how we are. Now in this sermon, Jesus is trying to get our imaginations shaped by that reality. He's no longer relating to us based upon our works and how well we're doing and how awesome our quiet time was and how obedient our children are or how outstanding our Attendance has been at the gathering. He is relating to us 
through the person and work of Jesus, and that's it. We see this as we go back. I want us to go back just a little bit in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, you are salt and you are light. You know, salt and light, they're not trying to be salt and light. They just are salt and light. You don't make yourself salt. You don't make yourself light. You've been made a Christian. You've been made into a son or a daughter of God. And now he's just saying, go live like it. Go be like that in the world. We want our neighbors to taste the goodness of God and to see the beauty of Jesus. So that's what we do out in the world. Here's the problem. Some of us think we're, we're living a salvation by saltiness type of life or a salvation by lightness type of life. We're tr what does that mean? We're still trying to relate to God on the basis of our works. How good are we doing today? How good of a missionary am I? How much scripture do I understand? Blah, 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 blah. We're still trying to relate to God on that. And the problem is, if you're doing that, you're going to be a very shallow person for at least two reasons. One, if my relationship with God is dependent upon my works, I'm gonna do everything in my power to resist seeing anything bad about me. Because if someone says you sinned in that way, I'm thinking, am I even saved? I don't even know if I'm even saved. God's probably mad at me. God's upset with me. Oh, how could I have done that? I can't believe I did that. Christians don't do that. What? Christians don't do what? Sin? Now, we, most of the time we don't say that. But that's, how, that's the, the false salvation, the false gospel that we're living out of. So if you're... If you're still caught up in a works-based relationship with God, you're going to be very shallow and anyone who's going to ever, it's going to be, you're going to do everything you can to not admit any of your faults, not even see any of your faults, not because you just don't want to confess your sins and admit that you're failing in this thing. And secondly, you really aren't going to be able to live in the world as salt and light because you don't understand that it's God who makes salt and light. You can't behave your way into becoming salt or light. And anytime somebody's trying to behave their way into salt and light, you know what it's like? It's like, it's like a piece of jewelry that's plated gold. My, my mom got my son, he wanted a chain a couple years ago. My wife, my mom got him a, you know, gold plated, gold plated. A couple months into that thing, it was silver. What did he say? What is this piece of crap? This is fake. I'm like, it's not fake. It's just plated gold. There's a difference between plated gold and solid gold. And guess what? There's a difference between surface level Christians and Christians all the way down. See, surface level Christians want to look righteous. They want to look good. They don't want to be good all the way down. They don't want to be different all the way down in the deepest part of their being. And that's really what Jesus has been showing these past six weeks. I'm going to pull out a little bit. And the last six weeks, this is, this is how Jesus has been saying it. You've heard that it was said, 
But I say to you this. Here's, the, here's what I want to see. You've heard that it said, here's what he's saying. Your imagination is shaped in this way. I want your imagination to be shaped in a God-centered, Christ-centered, gospel-centered way. In other words, your righteousness is gold-plated. I want it to go all the way down. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. Okay, yeah, well, that's, you should not commit adultery. I don't want you to look at a woman lustfully all the way down. I want you to be pure all the way down. I want you to be holy all the way down. I don't want you to, I don't, it's not just I don't want you to commit adultery and ruin your family and destroy society. I don't want you to objectify a woman made in my image. I want you to be different all the way down to the bottom. See, Jesus is blowing up this religious idea that we relate to God by our works and all he really cares about is how we look on the outside. Anytime that's how you're relating to God, your virtue is going to be nothing more than surface level. Jesus here has been correcting false teaching and false assumptions, trying to shape their imagination around a virtue that goes all the way down, being different all the way down, being salt all the way through, being light all the way through. That's why he said, remember, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. What were the Pharisees? Experts on image. Experts on praying long prayers and looking very religious and looking really close to God and having it all together where their neighbors would look and go, oh, that guy's so holy. He knows so much about God. He's so, he's so pure. He's so moral. He's so right. And yet when Jesus looked at him, he says, nope, I would spew that guy out of my mouth because he's nothing but gold-plated Inside that guy's heart, he, he, he said, looks like dead men's bones. So obviously, when you're relating to God through your works, you're always gonna be looking for loopholes and they were looking for loopholes everywhere. I don't wanna feel judged, so you're trying to lower the law to a level that you can feel good about yourself. The people Jesus is speaking to here today, they took the Old Testament command to love their neighbor and they used it as an excuse to hate their enemies. Right? We, we know this. Well, let's, let's look at our text. You've heard that it was said, so your imagination is captured by this, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, this is interesting because every other time he said, you've heard that it was said, he quoted directly from the Old Testament. It just kind of corrected their interpretation a little bit. This time, the first half of that statement is from the Old Testament. Love your enemy neighbor. The second half was their interpretation that was way off of the mark. Now we know because Jesus also corrected a Pharisee one time and the Pharisee said this. He said, go love your neighbor as you love yourself. He's like, all right, well, 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 who's my neighbor? Now what was he doing there? He's looking for a loophole because I'm called to love my neighbor and therefore I cannot love or maybe hate anybody who's not my neighbor right? And guess who's not my neighbor? My enemy. My enemy is not my neighbor. So they had, 
I mean, flipped the narrative of the Old Testament that God comes and adopts his enemies and brings them into his family by sheer grace. What he did to Abraham is gonna bless the whole world. They flip it and go, actually, we can uh, love our neighbor and hate our enemy. Cultural assumption of the day. Now, we have a lot of cultural assumptions. We have a lot of things that we believe to be true simply because we grew up in America. Not because Jesus has taught them to us, not because it's, a Christian imagination. And so Jesus here is correcting their cultural assumptions and saying, nope, nope, that's not the way the Christian lives in the world. He's trying again to reshape their imaginations, to Christianize their imagination. He says, love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you so that you will be sons of your Father in heaven. Now, whew. if this is how we relate to God, we in, we're in trouble. Let's, let's read this text. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. What does he mean by that? So that, because <laughs> that's a key. That's a key in understanding this text. If he's saying, do this in order for you to be a son or a daughter of God, we are in deep trouble. Here's how you can know if you're a Christian. If you want to become a Christian, you want to go to heaven, you want to know God, love your enemies. Uh-oh. Pray for those who persecute you. Uh-oh. Because I'll tell you what I do with those who persecute me. I defriend them. Unfriended, I'm out. I push away from them. That's what I do. You might, you might not, right? He says, Christians, my children, love their enemies and pray for those who persecute them. Now, if this is, if that's so that means this is how you become a Christian, we are all in a lot of trouble. But obviously, hopefully you understand that can't be what he's saying because he's already told us blessed are the poor in spirit. Not, he didn't say blessed are those who forgive their enemies. This is how they get the kingdom. We come to God with nothing in our hands but sin and he gives us grace. Here's what he's actually saying. That's so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. This is what, this is the idea he's trying to get across. Like father, like son. Act like your dad. You've been, now listen, I want my son to act like me in a lot of ways. I want him to act like his mother in other ways. But I want him to act like me. But am I saying son? I say, I've already messed up right there. Boy, in order to be my son, you better live this way. What? He's already my son. He's already in the family. I want him to act like me to take on my attributes because I want him to grow up into manhood of what it looks like to be a dean. That's what I want him to do. What Jesus is saying here is you've been made sons and daughters of God and I want you to live up into that identity of who you are. I want you to look at your dad. I want you to act like your spiritual dad. What does your dad do? Shocker, 
he forgives his enemies. Paul says all of us were at one time enemies of God. And what does, G what does God do for his enemies? He sends Jesus to them to save them from their sin. Now that's special grace, what he's done for the elect, what he's done for those in Christ. But he also loves those who still shake their fist at him and still push away from him and still deny his existence. He says right here, he gives them common grace. Look at our text. For he, God, makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Guess what? God's not like me. If I made a world, every person who disobeyed me in my world would have a perpetual rain cloud over their head with lightning, right? I would punish those suckers for refusing to admit that I was a good creator and I gave good gifts. That's the world that I would live in, right? Just zap them every time they disobeyed me. But what does God do? God gives common grace to all. That means you can lift your middle finger up at God and deny his existence and still put a seed in the ground and that seed's gonna grow up and you could possibly feed your family. And guess what? You might get the same harvest from a Christian who loves God, who's been changed by God, who plants the seed in the same ground and that person actually might experience a drought or something and might not get a harvest. So in this world, you could be evil and it actually go better for you than somebody who's in Christ. That is grace. That is goodness poured out on enemies. That's how benevolent our God is. And Jesus goes on. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Now tax collectors... Uh, they don't really have the same connotation as they did in Jesus' days. They were the epitome. They were the notorious sinners, okay? Um, and he, he's just like, guess what? The people that you think are the worst of the worst, they love those who love them. They like those who like them, right? If a good person gives you something, you feel compelled to give something good back to that good person, right? Keep reading. And if you greet only your brothers... What more are you doing than others, brothers and sisters in the faith? If you only hang out with Christians and you greet them and you hang out with them and guess what? Their views line up with your views and so you hang out with people who are all just like you. What more are you doing than others? Everybody does that, right? It's easy to be a Republican with all Republican friends. It's easy to be a Democrat with all Democrat friends. It's easy to be in middle class with all middle class friends, upper class, upper class friends, on and on and on we go. It's easy to do those things. That's the natural way of relating to God and relating to humanity. Jesus says, that's not the way he does it. Those who've been made new do it different. Those who've received the grace to become sons and daughters are God, by God, even though they were enemies of God, they've been brought into the family of God, they've been made salt, they've been made light, they've been made new, they've been made a, a son or a daughter, they're not behaving to become, they are already a son and daughter. Guess what they do? They love everyone, even their enemies, and pray for those who persecute them. 
Why? Because that's exactly what Jesus did for us. He's on the cross being crucified naked for sins he did not commit. Anytime that we get offended because somebody's pointing out a sin to us, Jesus denied the shame of the cross. He was literally being killed for sins he didn't commit. And he didn't get up there and justify himself. He didn't get up there, you don't know my heart. You don't know I'm a good person. I didn't do any of these crimes. No, what did he get up there and do? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus forgave his enemies as they were crucifying him. And if we can see that he did that for us on the cross, we can be free to accept the righteousness that comes from God instead of trying to build up our own righteousness through our good works. Now, verse 48 has caused me all kind of problems in my life. I read this verse, and I thought, uh-oh. First off, I fall very short from this standard. Secondly, hmm, I wonder if I can actually do that. Jesus says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. This verse throws me back into that normal way of relating to God through my works. Okay, I must be perfect. What does that mean? Well, let me share this with you. The Greek word translated in the ESV as perfect is teleos. Teleos. It means the end, the goal. It means complete. In philosophy, philosophers talk a lot about the telos, and there's a, a section of, of philosophy called teleos. My whole I can't even say it off the top of my head. Teleology, right? It's like, what is the end of it? What is the purpose of it? What is the goal? Now, here's the idea. For the Christian or for the human being, what you think the goal is will affect the way you live your life, right? The fact that you, that you know that this is, that I know that this is a pulpit affects the way that I use this, right? I don't bring it home and eat dinner off of it, right? It, stuff would fall into my lap. Right? I preach from it. The fact that you know your, your car, what is, its tele, what is its telos? It's to drive you around, to get you to point A to point B. Right? That's what it's going. So that's how you use it. The human being is no different. What you think the telos is, what you think the end is, what you think the goal of humanity is, it's going to affect the way that you live your life. Now listen. Jesus here is saying, you must be, I'm going to just use it like this. You must be, you must know the telos of yourself. You must be perfect as your father is perfect. That word telos or teleos 
is also used in three different places in the New Testament for the word maturity. Now think of it like this. If I look at a young man, 20-year-old man, I say that man has reached mature manhood. He's reached his telos. He is a mature man. Now, I'm speaking physically. That 20-year-old might be living in his mom's basement, right? Not mature. <laughs> but theoretically, physically, he has reached his mature, he has reached mature manhood. He has become perfect in that sense. I'm not saying he is a perfect man. I'm not saying that he is everything together. He's morally good. He's morally right. He's mature in every way. But in that physical sense, he has reached his telos. He is a man, right? We get that? So here, Jesus isn't telling us to be morally perfect as if we could possibly do that in this life. He's telling us to grow up into spiritual maturity and look like our dad. Eugene Peterson translates this verse like this in, his, in the message. In a word, what I'm, quoting Jesus, in a word, what I'm saying is, Grow up, your kingdom subjects, now live like it, live out your God-created identity. See, Jesus is trying to get our eyes off of ourself and put them on our Father. If we can get our eyes on the Father, we're going to understand what we're made for, we're gonna understand how we should live in this world, and we're gonna look a lot different from our culture. The problem is, is your imagination captured by that God? Is your imagination captured by the Father, or is your imagination captured by our culture? Because everything we watch, everything we read, all of the news outlets, all of the Netflix shows, all of the HBO, all of the books that we read from this generation are all saying the same thing. And basically, there's two narrative plots that they all say. One, look within. If you want to find yourself, if you want to know what you're for, look in. What does your feeling say? What do your desires say? Who do you think you are deep in the recesses of your soul? If you want to know yourself, go within. And then the other narrative is, if you want to find yourself, if you want to know yourself, go prove yourself. Look to your job. Look to your beauty. Look to your wisdom. Look to your degrees. Look to your family. Look to your bank account. Look to your success. These are the two narratives that are ruining our Christian imagination. And it's interesting. If a Hindu, a Hindu person believes in a plethora of gods, thousands of gods, they come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, oh, Jesus, we say Jesus is the son of God. You must accept him in order to know him and, and be his. Okay, I, I accept him. Okay, cool. All the Hindu did was take one Jesus and put it into their worldview already, put it into their imagination. Jesus is just like all the other gods. I'll accept him, sure, cool. That person is not changed. 
That person is not a Christian all the way through. That person has not been made new. And my fear is that most Christians in our society have done that exact same thing to Jesus. Oh, look within and find myself. Okay, Jesus will help me do that. Oh, look without and build a great career and build a great life and find myself. Okay, Jesus will help me do that. Jesus is like, nope. In Christianity, we don't look within to find ourselves. We don't look out to build and prove ourselves. We look up to God to receive ourselves. Colossians says our true life, our real life is hidden with Christ in God, and that is received. And that's a righteousness that goes all the way down. See, in Jesus' kingdom, God, the Father, moves into my center. I'm not defining my life by internal desires nor by external circumstances that I can make happen. I'm defining myself for focusing my imagination on God the Father himself. And I'm changed into his image from one degree of glory to the next. Get your eyes off of yourself, put your eyes on to the Father. His will then becomes your desire. His love becomes your motivation. His truth becomes your truth. And that's, guess what? Then, when I'm not trying to earn my righteousness, but I've received it from God, my behavior begins to reflect his character. I'm acting like my dad in this world. All of our minds are captured by some imagination of what does it mean to be a good man or a good woman. And Jesus says, let the Father capture your imagination for what you're for and how you should live in this world. Now, what's interesting, like I said last week, like I say every week, this is all dependent upon God's work, not ours. But one of the things that's fascinating and I want, hopefully can help capture your imagination this morning is from C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. <clears throat> and he's commenting on this verse. And he says this, the command be ye perfect, is not idealistic gas. So it's not just aspirational. It's not another thing you put on a coffee cup, right? It's not something you put on your Facebook profile, right? It's not something you tell yourself every morning, be perfect, boy, be perfect today. It's not idealistic gas. Listen, nor is it a command to do the impossible. Parents, please don't have this standard for your children. All I expect is perfection. Is that too much to ask? Every child would go, I think so. Seems a bit much. He, listen, this is not a, this, is, this command, be ye perfect, is not idealistic gas, nor is it a command to do the impossible. God, he is going to make us into creatures that can obey that command. 
he will make the feeblest and the filthy of us into a god or goddess, a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright, stainless mirror that reflects back to God perfectly, though of course, on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. You know what he's saying? He's making us into He's making us to look like himself. The beauty, the power, the radiance, the glory. We're going to be like that. Not because of our own work, because he's making us into it. And then Lewis says this. The process will be long and in parts very painful. But that is what we are in for. Nothing less. Jesus meant what he said. This is what it means to be a Christian. We're made right with God. We receive the righteousness of God. We receive the Holy Spirit. And now, from now until Christ comes back again, we are under construction. He's knocking out walls. He's restoring us. He's healing us. He's changing us. He's taking what we are, our gold-plated righteousness and he's taking it all the way down, all the way through us. That's what Jesus is doing for us. And that process is painful. But that's what you've signed up for if you've stepped into the kingdom of God. If you've been brought in, that's what you've signed up for. Sons and daughters are gonna be made to look like their father. That's what it is. And then, you know what's so freeing about this? That means when we go out in the world, we're not trying. We're just being. I'm not out there trying really hard to look righteous. I'm just being who God's made me to be. I'm just telling people about my father, what my father has done for me, what my father is doing in me. I'm not telling them what they need to do and I'm not trying to be something or do something. I'm just out there being a son, being salt, right? You don't throw that salt out on the si sidewalk and that salt's just out there trying to be salt. What are you doing? I'm trying to melt this ice. If you're salt, you melt it. If you're light, you move darkness. That's it. Christianity isn't about trying. It's about trusting Christ. It's not about doing. It's about receiving and then being out in the world. That's the message of the gospel. I said, if you've never heard that before, take your allegiance off of yourself. I know the world tells you trust yourself. Go out and make yourself, build yourself. I get it. Reject that. Let your imagination be captured by Jesus' way of being. Receive it from God, who you really are, and then live out of that. So much more freeing. Somebody confronts me in my sin. You're right, I did, I sinned. I messed up, my bad. I repent. Thank you for pointing that out to me. I don't have to earn my righteousness and prove to somebody that I'm better than I think I am or better than they think I am. I can be. I could be who I am, who God made me to be, and who God's making me to be. Children, reflect your Father in heaven, the gracious God who loves his enemies.
pray f- praise for those who persecuted him. Father, this is, if we read this one way, it is an impossible demand. But if we read it the way you said it, Jesus, we see this is the glorious future that awaits us. This is who you're making us into and this is whose we are. A father who loves his enemies. The son who forgave those who persecuted him and even has forgiven us for every sin we've ever committed against him. He's given us common grace and he's given us special grace. He is so benevolent. We come to you again this morning for more grace. We need more grace from you. As we come to the Lord's table, let us be reminded of what unites us. It is the work of Jesus, his body that was broken for us, his blood that was shed for us. This is what brings us together. This is our controlling reality. This is the imagination that we have as Christians that nothing can divide us, nothing can separate us from the love of God, nothing can divide us and destroy us as brothers and sisters if we focus on the Father himself. Help us do that this morning, Father, as we come with greedy, dirty, sinful hands and once again receive that which we do not deserve, the body and the blood of Christ. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.